So when we come to, to Palm Sunday and the, the triumphal entry, has one of you ever stopped and, and thought and imagined what it would have been like to be in Jerusalem on that day? Have you thought about what it would be like to, to be surrounded by hundreds of other people and the, the palms being waved and people taking off their, their cloaks and, and, and laying them down on the ground before making this royal carpet for this coming king? Can you picture, maybe feel the, the anticipation and the hope that, that would have been there on that day? I mean, maybe you're one of those people who had heard Jesus preach about the kingdom. Maybe you had experienced his teaching that was with authority. And maybe uh, you had even seen his authority uh, over illness, over demons, casting them out, over healing the sick, over creation, of calming the seas, or, or maybe... You were one of the people that had even witnessed his authority over death in seeing him raise Lazarus from the grave. You'd heard about that. Have you wondered what that would have been like and the anticipation and the hope that this was the day as you entered into Jerusalem, into the city, that Jesus would finally reveal himself to be this long hoped for king who would rise up, who would bring salvation, overthrow the Roman oppressors, and bring the kingdom of God. Can you picture that day in your minds? Now, wonder if I can stop your mid-thought on that. As you picture that, I ask you, how important is the donkey in that scene? Did you see the donkey? And I ask that because it's interesting that Matthew seems to make a pretty big deal out of it. There's 11 verses talking about this triumphant entrance, and seven of them are about the donkey. And I'm thinking, why would he do that? Because, I mean, in chapter 14, it said, and Jesus uh, got in a boat and they crossed the other side, and they didn't say how he came to get the boat or who they had to ask or how that came to be. Could have said, and Jesus rode in on a donkey in accordance with the scripture, or to fulfill the scriptures. And I wouldn't have asked anything else about it. Yet Matthew, seven out of 11 verses is about the donkey. I think, I wonder why. He must really want us to take note of that. And I think the answer to that wondering question, it comes in the quote in verse five. To say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The quote actually mixes uh, quotes from Isaiah and from Zechariah. The first part from Isaiah says to tell the daughter of Zion, which is the people of Jerusalem, uh, that salvation is coming. And then Zechariah says the king is coming. This is the same thing. The king is bringing salvation to you. And the next bit is the important bit, though, because he's going to say the king is humble. He's going to be riding on a donkey, a lowly animal, a, beast of burden. And in Zechariah, if we'd read the extra verses, he contrasts that from this humble king on a beast of burden to the chariots and the war horse and the battle bow. So clearly this is contrast being made between the humble king and the donkey and the chariot, the, the war horse 
and the battle bow there. And up to this point, Matthew's gospel has been all about the kingdom. He's been proclaiming that, and we've seen this preached. And it continues to be so here as well. And my hope and my prayer for us as we unpack this a little bit, my prayer is that in this Holy Week, as we enter into it and as we read the Gospels and we read this passion narrative, I pray that God would open our eyes and he would help us to see the contrast between the way of the world or the war horse and the way of the kingdom of God and the donkey. We're going to see this in uh, three ways we'll see the way of the world, uh, through three people or groups of people, um, just to bring this out a little bit. The first one uh, is through Judas. Our, our scene goes from a, a triumphal entry and waving palms and quotes to now it's nighttime. We're standing in a, in a garden, and it's dark, and in the distance we can hear the noise of a crowd. And, and we look over there in the crowd, and we start to see the flicker of a torch, and as the crowd moves closer, we can start to see the dim outline of a crowd of people, a large crowd of people, and they're carrying clubs and swords. And out of the, the darkness steps forward Judas, we're told is one of the twelve, a betrayer. And as Judas steps forward, it's interesting, he, he addresses Jesus first something a student would never do to a rabbi. It was a sign of insubordination, a sign of being thought of as an equal. And yet we already know that about Judas. He doesn't see himself as subordinate to Jesus. He's just sold him for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. We know a little bit about um, Judas in the Gospels. He's in charge of, of the money bag. It seems to be fixated uh, with money, and that maybe greed has started to affect his heart, maybe to the point where he would betray his own friend and sell him out for money. But I wonder if it goes even further than that. We think about it that um, does he not just do it for greed, but actually to further his own interest and his own agenda? Do so you know that uh, Judas was a zealot? part of a group of um, people who wanted a, um, a militaristic, a violent overthrowing of the Roman occupation. And I wondered by thinking that um, he could force Jesus' hand by causing uh, this insurrection and maybe that Jesus would finally be um, bringing a call to arms and to the sword. And for Judas, maybe that's what he knew. Salvation comes through the sword, because that's the way the kingdoms of the world come about. As I reflect on Judas this week, it makes me wonder and to think, if we assess our own hearts, have we never sold out the kingdom for money ourselves? I wonder, is there not a way that in some sense that we've also tried to manipulate Jesus to further our desire ends as well? we turn Jesus into some sort of chaplain for consumerism or ask Jesus to, uh, to give us a mandate for a militaristic nationalism. But Judas here, he follows the way of the world, motivated by greed and the desire for his own preferred ends 
he delivers Jesus over to the priests and to the religious leaders. So next up, we're seeing the way of the world through the religious leaders. And we know by this stage in reading Matthew's gospel, these guys are hard-hearted. Their behavior reveals little more than a, a, a dead religion. And Jesus has uh, time and again pointed out their hypocrisy. He's called them a, a brood of vipers. And they've struggled against Jesus the whole way through right from the start, struggling, and we see they've got a pride issue. What's their pride in? They're proud of their authority and their power. And see, Jesus is a threat to this authority, and so they want to get rid of him. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, we get the two recordings um, of plots against Jesus when people are threatened uh, by his power. Right back in, in chapter 2, you hear King Herod, when he finds out that the one who is to be born king of the Jews is born, he plots to destroy Jesus. And now here, near the end, we get the same threat to power and the same response in these people's hearts. See, in uh, chapter 26, verse 3, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Uh, 59, false witnesses they could put him to death. In chapter 27, they plot to destroy him, the same word that Herod used. And even Pilate recognizes their motives. He says it's out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. And so these religious leaders, desperate to, to hang on to this authority and power they've got, they engage in an illegal trial they get false witnesses in, and they ignore the blood on their own hands. And you notice, it's even when, when Judas comes in, he confesses his sins, and he says, I've got innocent um, blood on my hands. They don't actually care about it. And they're worried about the money and saying, we can't use this money because it's blood money, and yet they're not interested at all about an innocent man dying or their own complicity in it. They're just like Jesus had said. They're whitewashed tombs, more worried about straining out gnats while they eat camels. But then how do we respond to Jesus when he threatens our power and our authority? When he claims lordship over all areas of our lives, he challenges our status quo. What do we do? We're prepared to submit to him always when he exposes our pride, our desire for control and power. And I ask myself, and I ask us, well, how willing are we to dethrone ourselves to allow Jesus be Lord? Following the way of the world and motivated by envy and a desire for power and authority, the priests deliver Jesus over to Pilate. And now we see third example of the way of the world through Pilate. It's clear in, in Matthew's gospel that, uh, that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He says, well, what evil has this man done? His wife knows Jesus is innocent, and she comes up and she tells him to have nothing to do with it. So surely, surely the injustice stops here. And yet it doesn't because Pilate's too scared to act because it'll cost him his political aspirations. 
he can't afford an uprising, and so he tries to worm his way out of making a decision. He tries to hand him to Herod or hand over to the crowd. And at the end, out of self-interest, this is seeing he was gaining nothing. So he'd wash his hands off it and hand him over to the soldiers who crucified Jesus. And again, I reflect and I wonder, well, how often do we try to wash our hands of injustice, allow it to go ahead, because to take a stand against the crowd would have career consequences. And so following the way of the world and motivated by fear and selfish ambition, Pilate hands Jesus over. And so give these, well, Matthew gives these three snapshots highlighting the way of the world, um, the way of the war horse. It's a way motivated by greed and envy, desire for power and fear and selfish ambition. And it's a way that leads to betrayal and injustice, violence, suffering, shaming, and death. Many of us have experienced this, we we know it well. We don't have to look too far or read too much to see the evidence of it all around us. And all of us, no doubt, as we reflect, we can recognize our own complicity in this as well. We can see some of Judas, some of the religious leaders, and and some of the, the Pilate within our own hearts. So the question is, when we, when we look at this and we see the depth of our sin, the depth of the, the problem and the irreconciliation, the injustice all around us, and we see the cost of sin, well, is there good news? Well, I'll say that there is good news because there is a king who brings a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a king that does bring salvation And it does bring hope. And we're seeing it's the way of the kingdom of God, the way of the king riding on the donkey, the humble king. Think back to to the garden at the moment that Jesus was arrested. And Peter, probably in an act of um, solidarity or wanting to stand uh, by his Lord, pulls out a sword, cuts off the ear, and Jesus tells to put the sword away. And he says, "Um, those who take the sword will perish by the sword. He said, do you not think my father could send 12 legions of angels? Then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? I was thinking and and reflecting on this this passage and there was something happens next that really grabbed my attention. Now this speaks volumes. When Judas is is done that, Jesus looks at him and he says, friend, do what you came to do. Isn't that staggering? You've got all these people going about their own desires, their own interests. And yet here is also Jesus doing what he came to do. We've been studying uh, through this Lenten season. We've been looking at the reality of this abundant life. We think if we extend that verse out beyond uh, the second part of our cover verse and say the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friend, do what you came to do because Jesus is coming to do what he came to do. See, when all around him is betrayal, and Matthew repeats this word over and over and over again, 10 times 
and 26, about 31 times in the gospel, betrayal. And we see Jesus is faithful. Think back at the start after the baptism and Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan out there. Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. All these can be yours if you just bow down to me. And Jesus resists. He's obedient to the Father, trusts in the Father. Think about when Peter, when he's just, Jesus has just said to the disciples that the Messiah must suffer and die. He's going to be handed over to be crucified. And Peter stands up and says, no, Lord, there's no way that's going to happen to you. And Jesus pulls him aside and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of, of heaven, but the things of this world. And then on the cross at the end, we hear the same temptation of Satan, the same voice saying, well, if he's the son of God, well, save himself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Same voice and Jesus faithful to the end, obedient even to the point of death. What's the motivation for this? And how does it contrast to the way of the war horse? It's interesting that the same verb that was used for delivered over, Jesus delivers Jesus over to the religious leaders. The religious leaders deliver him over to Pilate. And Pilate delivers him over to the soldiers. It's the same word used in Romans when we hear that the father who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. In contrast to the others who delivered Jesus over for greed, and for power, selfish ambition, and fear, the motive for Jesus being handed over by the father is love. It's a reconciling love. A love that redeems that heals, that invites us back into the life of God. It's a costly love. I pray this week as we look and as we read the Gospels and we consider this, that we see the extravagance of this love. But it all takes place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that Christ must suffer and die. And notice again that point when Judas comes forward. Jesus looks and starts off and says, friend. Think back to the, the teaching about the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount at the start. Now we see the king living out the life of the kingdom. Revealing that way, we see he's poor in spirit, meek, humble, persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. But think about this as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, daughters of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you can bear the family likeness. You can reveal and, and reflect God in the world. Here is Jesus, the true son of the Father revealing the Father's love, the lengths he would go to to reconcile ourselves to him. This is what God is like. Jesus, the son of the Father. And it's interesting, if we go back to the crowd, 
and consider at the start, this crowd has moved on and Pilate gives them a choice. And he says, who shall I release? Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Barabbas meaning son of the father. The son of the father represents the way of the world, the way of the war horse, the violent insurrectionist. Or Jesus, the son of the father in heaven, coming in humility and in love. And the crowd who had been singing Hosanna just a week earlier said, give us Barabbas, give us the war horse, crucify Jesus. We kill the king who came in love. It's interesting, again, reading the gospel, I noticed just prior that the, the account just before the triumphant entry, Jesus is walking along and there's two blind men cry out to him and they say, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus goes over to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? So open our eyes. And he does. And that's my prayer for us this week and my encouragement as we read through each of the Gospels, the Passion narratives, and as we journey towards the cross on Good Friday. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see the way of the, the war horse in the world and the way of the kingdom the way of the kingdom of God. Open our eyes to see it, to see the love behind it. Open our eyes that in contrast to the way of the world, grasping and fighting to hold on to power, may we see the way of the kingdom of God, relinquishing power and trusting in the Father in heaven. In contrast to the ways of the world where the leaders use force and violence to establish their control, May we see the way of the kingdom of God where the king comes in peace and takes the pain, the humiliation, the shame and suffering on himself to heal, to reconcile and to forgive. In contrast to the ways of the world marked by greed and envy and selfish ambition and fear, may we see the way of the kingdom of God marked by self-giving and sacrificial love. Pray this holy week, may we see the way of the kingdom, which is the way of the cross. May we also be filled with awe and say, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus, this week, as you lead us and we see your way to the cross, we see the lengths you would go to reconcile us to yourself. We see your love. Would you open our eyes to the abundant life that you came to bring us? By the power of your spirit, may we lay hold of it, taking up our crosses to follow you. May our eyes be opened, Lord.